We've got about a minute uh, before it actually is 10 o'clock, but I'm going to go in and get us started. It seems like most of us are in here, and we are in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we'll be looking at um, this particular point in David's life. Let me remind you that we've been following David's career from his childhood up until the time he is king in Jerusalem now, and he is getting his kingdom consolidated and established. Part of that was bringing the ark in. And today we're going to see, after he's fought a lot of battles, what he does next that's very instructive for us, I think, in our own Christian lives. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I'm going to ask the Lord to guide us as we begin to look at his word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can gather on this Sabbath day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, acknowledging that we are your children by adoption and we have much to celebrate because we've been freed from sin and been guided by your spirit in how to live. We pray that you will speak to us through this passage today and that our lives will be changed and the way we think will be altered to become more like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This story is so good, I'm going to read the entire chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Feel free to follow along if you like. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, 
according to all that my Lord the King commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now to say that Mephibosheth's life had drastically changed is an understatement. This is truly an amazing story, and it is a radical flip-flop of one particular life, and it's recorded for us for a particular purpose. Now, Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. We're going to get to how that happened in a minute. But in this, you look at Ziba, who had 15 sons and 20 servants. This was a massive household, a lot of people, and Ziba was in charge of all of this. After Saul's death, the way things settled out was not clear, but apparently he still had control of a lot of land, a lot of crops and flocks. And Mephibosheth, because he was a cripple and was young, probably somewhere between, I'm guessing, 7 or 14 years old, it's not clear, still a very young man, has been elevated from being a dependent in somebody else's house, not particularly a relative, to being an owner of all of this land, all of this produce, and having Ziba under his authority. It's an amazing switch around that has happened through the work of King David. Now, Scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. That's in 1 Samuel 13, 14. Samuel himself says, God is going to reject you, Saul, and he's going to appoint a man after my own heart. <clears throat> that man turns out to be David. As I said earlier, the kingdom is now secure. Saul and his house are gone and over. The opposing generals have been reconciled one way or the other. David is consolidating his power in Jerusalem, and the kingdom is secure. In chapter 8, we're given a long list of those surrounding kingdoms. Remember, I said it's more like, in our minds, counties. It's a relatively small area around Jerusalem, considering the worldwide scope. But David conquered all of these and the plunder was dedicated to God in his humility and dependence upon God, but that has secured his kingship in Jerusalem, and he has a humble attitude. Now, unlike many individuals who come into power, who come into great power, David remains humble. Most people, it goes to their heads, as it did with Saul. As we see with most rulers, they tend to think they are now in charge. They've got the authority. They've got the power. They get to do whatever they want to. David is not so. We see in this man a humility, even as he's been raised into the kingdom. And as he's consolidating everything, he wants to show mercy to anybody that's connected with the previous kingdom, Saul's kingdom, and especially connected with Jonathan. You remember that incredible relationship that Jonathan David had. 
like blood brothers. They, they truly, truly had given themselves to one another in loyalty and in service. And he has been slaughtered with Saul on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. And David is now saying, isn't there any survivor? Now, this is unusual in itself because usually in the ancient Mideast, when kingdoms were transferred to the death of the king, whoever became the new king would slaughter all the descendants and relatives of the previous king. David did not do that. In fact, here he is looking for some survivor that he may show kindness to out of Saul's household or descendants. And it turns out it is Mephibosheth, who is a grandson of Saul. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So there is a young boy, five years old, fleeing because this dynasty had crumbled. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed. That's why I said at, at the, the youngest, he would have been seven years old, two years after uh, the kingdom of Saul had fallen and it was really transferred to David. And then all this conquering of other tribes, it, it may have been three or four more years, but certainly he was younger than being called an adult. And he is living with this other group. Someone has taken pity on this crippled child and brought him into the house. We don't know anything about the circumstances we know there was great loyalty to David. We'll come to that several chapters later by that family that was caring for Mephibosheth, but almost as if he was hidden. And Ziba, Saul's servant, knew about it, but was not telling anybody. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. If this is the sole survivor in the direct line of King Saul, probably didn't want the word to get out because someone else might decide, well, we'll take care of that. We'll help David out and wipe this guy out. But David decides that he wants to do some good to anyone from the household of Saul. Mephibosheth obviously cannot care for himself. If he's crippled, he's lame in his feet, he can't walk, he can't work at a trade other than if he's going to be sitting down doing something like leather work or pottery. But certainly it's not ambulatory and he does not have the means to have a lot of servants taking care of him. Yet, And Ziba actually will tell David, yes, there is one descendant. His name is Mephibosheth. I'm glad I don't have a lisp. His name is Mephibosheth, and he's staying with his family. And David says, get him and bring him to me. I want to meet him. Now, nothing else is indicated about what David intends to do. So I can only imagine, as you can, this crippled young teenager, is brought, carried into David's court and placed there before him, he's got to be thinking, well, this is it. I'm the last survivor and I'm going to get put away. And this is what happens. I've been found out. And what is David's word to him? I love it. Don't 
be afraid. <laughs> we hear that often in scripture. It comes from angels to men. It comes from Jesus to his disciples. Here it comes from David to Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. And Mephibosheth responds in an amazing way after David tells him that what he's going to do, he's not going to kill him, he's going to reward him. And Mephibosheth paid homage, verse 8, and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He's not saying, well, finally, somebody found out who I am. It's about time. No, he is well aware that he is totally unworthy of any kindness from David, from this succeeding king, and he is overwhelmed. It says he fell down. I don't know how that works if he was crippled in his feet. He may have been on a litter, and he simply went out and was on his knees before David. But however it worked out, he humbles himself and says, I am not worthy for you to show me this kindness. A radical change in his life. He's gone from being a dependent to being the owner of many servants. He is overseer of uh, Ziba, who had been overseer of all this property, and all of a sudden he had this incredible income from the crops and the flocks and the work that these people were doing, and he is sitting in the court of David and eats at his table every day. What a change in his life. Mercy. Mercy is a distinct characteristic of God. Mercy is a distinct characteristic of God. And David gives us an example of what that looks like in day-to-day -day life. I'm going to read another passage that is in itself a little extensive. And I don't know why this came to me. But it is actually Zechariah's prayer of praise to God at the birth of John the Baptist. Remember, Zechariah was struck dumb because he didn't believe God's promise. The child is born. They say, what's his name? He says, his name is John, which the angel told him. And immediately he's no longer uh, dumb. He's able to speak. And this is what he says. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And speaking to this baby and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God's mercy.
demonstrated in miraculous birth, first of John the Baptist, and then the even more miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. You and I know what it's like to be crippled by sin. We're moving from a physical difficulty to a spiritual truth. We know what it's like to be crippled by sin. To do something our own conscience says, no, that's not right, don't do it. We decide to go ahead anyway. To get into the habit of doing what is wrong and hurtful to others and hurtful to ourselves, we know what it's like to be crippled spiritually because of our own bad decisions and our bad thoughts and our rebellion against God, wanting to set ourselves up as in charge of our lives rather than having God in charge of our lives. It makes us fearful of God. We don't like to admit that. But before we came to know Christ, even before we were aware of it, we were afraid of God because somewhere deep down we knew this was not what he intended. And it's only by God's grace and the work of his spirit in our hearts that that fear can first of all be identified and then it is taken away. And no longer is God some sort of image of Zeus throwing thunderbolts down, but he becomes a loving heavenly father. Someone we do not need to be afraid of. Someone we love, we respect, we honor, we magnify him, we stand in awe of him, but he is our loving father and the fear is taken away. David's words to Mephibosheth are God's words to us as well. Don't be afraid. I know you. I know what you've done. I know what you've thought. It's okay. I am merciful and I forgive you through the work of my son Jesus Christ on your behalf. Don't be afraid of me. And when that happens, whether you met your conversion all at once or whether it was a slow process that ultimately ended up in awareness of what had happened, it does not matter. Our response to God's grace is to be humbled, to be amazed, and to be grateful. And probably some of us actually went down on our knees with tears in our eyes and said, God, how can you be so merciful to me, as Mephibosheth did with David? It is an amazing change in the human life and heart when we surrender our own agenda and submit ourselves to God in his mercy and his love and say, whatever you want, I'll do it. I am yours. I am no longer mine. I belong to you. I do not deserve your mercy. I do not deserve your forgiveness. I do not deserve your kindness, but you have given it to me, and I will forever be grateful and praise your name. God doesn't change our past. That's not the way it works. We may still suffer the effects of past decisions and past sinful behavior, but what God does do, as David did 
in Mephibosheth's life. There was no way to restore his legs to him, but he was given an incredible life of ease and everything he needed was provided. So with you and me, it does not reverse what happened in the past, but it wipes the slate clean. And we no longer have to live in guilt about what we have done before we met Christ. And even in our walk with the Lord, there are times where we stumble, we fall, we do wrong things, and it's still the same thing. We do not need to be afraid, and he will bring mercy and forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. This is one of those little gems that remains embedded in a whole plethora of great teaching. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. The writer says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a wonderful image. Our hearts sprinkled clean, washed with pure water. Man, to have a clean conscience, what a gift. That goes beyond sitting at the king's table. That goes beyond having all these servants, all this income, to be able to have a clear and clean conscience, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Amazing. Amazing. It's over. It's done. It's in the past. It has no more power over you and me, nor should we ever give in to it. As I've said before, you have found, as I have, I'm sure, this is one of Satan's favorite ploys, is that in a moment of reflection, you and I will go back to some event in our lives, and we think, man, that was awful. That was awful. How could I have done that? I am undeserving. That's what Satan wants us to keep in our minds and our hearts. I'm nothing. How could anybody love me? And at the very same moment, the way to deal with that from Satan is to go to God's truth and say, that may be true, but God loves me. God has forgiven me. God has washed my conscience clean. And that past act, that past attitude, that past thought is gone. It's over. Amen. It does not have any power over me. I am living a new life in the power of Jesus Christ with a cleansed conscience. But wait, there's more. Not only is this an indication of what God's mercy is like to us, David's treatment of Mephibosheth, we can take this one step further. This is a wonderful example of what you and I can do in our lives. It may be time for you and me to extend mercy to someone who does not deserve it. We get caught up so often trying to live the Christian life, going through our devotions, coming to worship, seeking to do the right things. We can forget there are others 
who are in need of God's mercy too. And it's not just in sharing the gospel with them, but is actually becoming involved in their lives in a very real and tangible way to extend mercy to someone. It may be someone in your extended family. It may be someone in your past that comes to mind. It may be someone that you see that's in need. Now, we obviously can't go to everything we see in everybody that has a need, but God will lead us to show us who it is that needs to have some mercy shown to them. We don't have to do this. This is not a requisite for salvation, though it is an indicator of our love for Christ. We don't have to do this. And for it really to be an act of mercy, whoever this person is, they don't deserve it. They deserve isolation. They deserve to be left alone, to wallow in their misery, whatever it may be. But before you go too far with that, remember our status before God, before we met him through Jesus Christ. We didn't deserve it. <laughs> we were reprehensible, nasty in his sight because of our sin. All gone, all over. God says, I don't care. I want you to be my child. And we come into his family, adopted through the work of Jesus Christ. And again, in terms of that individual's past, we can't change that. We can't make up for that in any way. That is to be left alone. But we can bring mercy now. And I encourage you to think on this in this coming week. And there may not be anybody that comes to mind. That's okay. But there may be someone the Lord puts on your heart to realize, you know, I need to get in touch with them. I need to find out what's going on here. And sometimes, as we all know and experience, we may show mercy to someone and they abuse it. They aren't humble. They're not grateful. What else you got? My advice to you is just leave it alone and go and find someone who can truly appreciate what it means to be loved and cared for in mercy. This is what it means to be a person after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. We're going to see how that plays out in a little while in David's life in an unusual way. But this is an indicator. A person who is after God's own heart is someone who shows mercy to someone who does not deserve it. Now, there is great healing great healing with forgiveness and mercy. And for that, we're going to go to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. I'm not going to have time to read all of this, but this is that wonderful moment where Peter is with Jesus after the resurrection. They're by the seaside. Peter is beating himself up because he had denied Christ three times. He had jumped ship. He was gone. The only thing he knew that he could do was to go fishing. So he's out with some of the others doing what they'd done before they'd ever met Jesus. 
and they see this man on the shore. He's already got a fire going and he's already got fish broiling on the fire. And he calls them to come in. And they do. And they realize it's the resurrected Lord. And Jesus takes Peter aside and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? This is hard. Three times, because he had denied him three times. And part of that healing process in Peter's conscience was to say, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you more than these fish. I love you. I love you. And the third time, he is so humiliated. Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know I love you. And what's not said is, I am so sorry. I am so, so sorry. I denied you. Jesus, in effect, says, it's okay. I love you. And I've got great work for you to do. Now, that is mercy. And if Jesus could be merciful for the one who denied him publicly didn't even want to be associated with him, we can show mercy to those that don't deserve it either. We must be wise. We must be wise and discerning about who that's extended to. But it is an indicator of having a heart like God's. It's for you and me to offer to other people. It's for them to accept it or to reject it. We are not responsible for how they respond to our mercy. Hopefully there is a humility, there is a gratitude, there is a desire to change and to accept this, but there may not be. And again, you've extended it, it's not received well, leave it alone and find someone else who can accept a truly merciful act on your part. And when we extend mercy to someone else, we're becoming more like Jesus Christ. This is sanctification. A wonderful hymn, more about God's mercy to us rather than us showing mercy to others. But it's entitled, When All Thy Mercies, O My God. When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. Unnumbered comforts to my soul, thy tender care bestowed. Before my infant heart conceived, from whom those comforts flowed. When worn with sickness, oft hast thou with health renewed my face. And when in sins and sorrows bound, revived my soul with grace. Through every period of my life, thy goodness I'll pursue. And after death, in, distinct, in, in distant worlds, this glorious theme renew. God has been so merciful to us. It is for us to practice mercy to others. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you that David was indeed a man after your own heart, that the humility remained and the desire to show your mercy to someone else because he was a recipient of yours is a great lesson to us. Lord, give us discernment, give us peace, give us a positive attitude about life through Jesus Christ and show us how we can show mercy. What deed or effort can be done that will be a comfort and an encouragement to someone who is struggling and who is ready to receive a gift from you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.